<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Mick Garris. Welcome once again to the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And producer Joe Russo is here to ask your questions. So, Joe, how are you today? I I'm good, Mick. This is our first Dread Central AMA. It uh, is indeed. And uh, the first one where we've both been fully vaccinated. That's true. And yet we are still doing this remotely. But uh, <laughs> we are hopefully hopefully soon we will do it again in person. We're, we're going to go see a movie this week together. So that's pretty exciting. That's uh, true. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I've, I've gone to, to the movies four or five times so far since uh, we've been able to. And it's such a great feeling. I think this is going to be my first one. I, I was debating going sooner just so that I don't seem like a total weirdo when I walk back into a theater for the first time. But uh <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you'll be boulderized. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, lots of news since we last, uh, you know, spoke, um, you know, yeah. dread, we're on dread central. We had Clive Barker on, we had our hundredth episode. Um, yeah, the life is, uh, is exciting yes, and, uh, it's getting, if not back to normal in some ways, even better. I agree. I agree. Shall we, uh, shall we jump into the mailbag? Let's ask and answer some questions. All right. Richard asks, seeing you with R2-D2 on May the 4th made me wonder, would you have ever wanted to dip your toe into writing, directing Star Wars for books, TV, etc.? You know, I helped edit the original uh, screenplay of Star Wars for the Art of Star Wars book way back in 1978. Um but uh, directing that kind of movie, I, I don't think it's what I do best. I mean, it was the first movie job I ever had was answering phones for the original Star Wars. And that was amazing. But I think as my life as a filmmaker and as an author has progressed, it's taken me in a more different directions than that. I, I don't know that a sci-fi hardware movie would would be something that would appeal to me more than something on a on a different scale back then did you ever did you ever dream up any any star wars stories when you were when you were working in the offices did you ever say uh, back, boy it'd be cool if back then i never imagined i would be able to make movies you know i i had the dream and it was my first step in the door, but it was the lowest rung of the ladder that you could <laughs> climb. So, you know, uh, just being surrounded by Star Wars and going to events and operating R2-D2 at the Oscars that year and all that, that was so exciting that, um, you know, I'll keep that as my Star Wars memories close to my heart rather than being the guy who fucks up the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Well, luckily, other people have taken that mantle, you know, so you're good. Uh, <laughs> Alex writes, your recent conversation with Clive Barker was wonderful. I agree. Uh, what is your favorite of your various collaborations with him? Well, the ones that got made were the two episodes of um, uh, Masters of Horror. 
uh, one of which I wrote and John McNaughton directed, Heckle's Tale. Um, and uh, the other one was Valerie on the Stairs based on a, on a Barker story that I adapted and directed. So those were really great because they got made. Sure. In, in the Flesh is a feature adaptation of his story that I wrote the screenplay for and I was supposed to direct at Warner Brothers. And I loved that script. Well, The Mummy too was something. Clive Barker's The Mummy was not your grandfather's mummy. It was something quite different. And for a while, Clive was going to direct it. Then I was going to direct it. Then nobody was going to direct it because <laughs> it was way too weird and, uh, and erotic and twisted for a major studio like Universal to have done it. But In the Flesh was pretty special. And the plan from the beginning was that I would write and direct it. And uh, I was excited about that. But frankly, I'm more excited about what's coming up now than anything else. We have plans to do a, uh, a series, an anthology series, based on 10 original Clive Barker stories written specifically for this show called Clive Barker's Theater of Blood. And we are in a, uh, a holding pattern right now with our, our breath, collective breath being held because it looks like some movement is going to take place very, very shortly. Very exciting stuff. I can't, I can't wait to hear what transpires as I'm sure. Uh, so all many, so many of our listeners probably feel the same. Um, Craig wants to know, you seem like the calmest, most level-headed person around. Any advice, <laughs> any advice on how to keep your cool? Well, appearances can be misleading. Uh, I get as frustrated uh, as anybody does, but when you're working uh, with people, whether it's uh, directing a movie or TV show or, or on the podcast or whatever, you know, to get upset about things over which you have no control is folly. It's just no use to it. Things are going to work out. Things will work out as well as you can possibly help them to work out. And so losing your temper or wishing things were something else uh, and being upset about it, worrying about it uh, is the way to an early grave. And uh, so you're born with your demeanor, but you can work on it however you can. When I was a, a little tiny boy, I would get angry at a terrible temper and I'd bump my head against the wall to, in protest and, oh, and that wow. sort of thing. But over the years, I just um, really have learned to roll with the punches. And, and I'm a very happy individual because of that. And, and I've been lucky to roll with some pretty good punches. That's true. That's true. Uh, I, I, I think that that is sage like advice and uh, I, I could use, you know, trying some of that myself. It's a good reminder. Um, <laughs> Joe, you are a very level headed fellow. We well, yeah. I mean, you've never seen me try to set up a computer before, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which you're going through fair, right now. Yeah. Our listeners. Yeah. Which I'm going through right now. And also, uh, our, our listeners have not seen you drive in traffic and I have. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well. it's, it's something we all have to work on. I think uh, in LA. Matt wants to know that's true, especially in LA. 
Uh, Matt wants to know, what's it like to prep for an audio commentary on one of your films? And would you ever consider doing an audio commentary on postmortem for movies uh, that you haven't done commentaries yet for? Well, I think postmortem is the wrong format for it. You know, this is asking questions of people and and getting information that covers a career rather than covers a specific movie. And as far as my movies go, I'll just do a commentary. Uh, frankly, I do not prep for them. I've lived them uh, to the point where even if it's 20 years later, I can do a commentary, especially if there's a moderator on the commentary. That's always very helpful because it's really difficult to speak about what you're watching at the moment and then see the next scene when you haven't finished uh, a point or uh, something you want to discuss about the scene that has just ended and overlap and I feel like I'm rushing that sort of thing. Um, but other than watching the movie once, uh, if I haven't seen it in a long time, I don't really prep for them. And again, postmortem, especially if it's one of my movies, that's not what this show is about. The AMAs, yes, they're questions uh, about my life and career over the years. But postmortem as a program is all about getting people who are expert in this field and see what makes them tick. I wouldn't rule it out, though, because <laughs> what if the question was, will you do a commentary on X? I, it could be a fun little bonus thing to do in lieu of an AMA. It uh, could so, be, but at, at this point, it's not something that appeals to me in that regard for this show. Well, I'm going to keep chipping away on you because I think it's actually a really terrific idea. So <laughs> okay. uh, Kurt asks, speaking of taking postmortem in, in new directions, Kurt asks, any thoughts on doing a live postmortem or AMA on the app Clubhouse? What are your thoughts on this new audio platform? Have you tinkered around with it at all yet, Mick? Have you? You know, I've Clubhouse? seen it. I've been asked to uh, to do some things on Clubhouse, and uh, you know, it's it's not really a format that has that much appeal to me uh, as far as taking the show live. There, we've done some live postmortems. We've never done a live AMA show, yeah. but uh, now with our association with Dread, we may be doing more live appearances where we would do uh, one of our shows and, and maybe record an AMA with an audience we as well. We did one live AMA and that was at Camp Fangoria. That was pretty fun, actually. Yeah, that's true. That was a good time. And yeah. I love being able to do it live face-to-face. -face. Um, doing it live on an app has less appeal to me, but I don't rule it out as much as I rule out the uh, commentary. <laughs> oh, again, chipping away. I, you yeah. know, our, our friend of the podcast, uh, Jed Shepard has really kind of jumped in the clubhouse, like head first. And wow. uh, he has, Jed a, is great. Yeah. yes, he is. And uh, he's got a weekly kind of clubhouse of horrors, what he calls it, uh, where, where he gets <laughs> the Simpsons. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. It's a nice riff. Uh, treehouse yeah yeah treehouse uh-huh and uh and and so they they get some filmmakers together to chat and i've done it once or twice it's pretty fun and i think if we were to do a ama on clubhouse uh i would certainly talk to him about helping to wrangle that because he's he's amassed quite a fan base uh well, so. it's possible but there it might go in directions that <laughs> yes it's asked me anything but not live i'll tell you i'll tell you this <laughs> Uh, I've done a couple live Q and A's on it and, and people are pretty respectful. So, um, 
that's right. that you know our fans. Let's, let's not rule it out it's it's another yeah. maybe I say, yeah as, okay as it's a producer, maybe for joe but producer joe the... <laughs> says it's a maybe uh, well, okay patrick wants to know does mick listen to any podcasts if so which ones you know i've listened to a lot of true crime ones over the years and the like but my favorite one is the movies that made me with uh with joe dante and uh and josh um they do such a good job they get great guests and it's not so much interviewing the guests about themselves, but the movies that inspired them, you know, do, choose a bunch of movies yeah. specifically not in your genre. And I was a guest on there once and I did um, rock and roll movies rather than horror movies. Yeah. So they get people who yeah. are really fascinating to do, go in unexpected directions. And it's always good. Josh well, and Olson so and, and Joe. Too. Yeah. yeah. And Joe is an instant encyclopedia. He doesn't need to look well, that's anything what I was just up. Say, is Joe, Joe's such a cinephile. He's seen everything, every movie that comes up. He has something that he can comment on, which is perfect. Yeah. Uh, so that's the show I would most recommend. The one I listen to more than any other. Oh, it's no, it's, it's terrific. And it is one that I subscribe to as well. Um, speaking of Joe Dante, this is actually a perfect segue. Mike asks, where did you shoot your howling cameo? Well, the howling was shot in Hollywood. Uh, it was shot uh, very low budget, but you can't tell by looking at it. And our scene was shot in somebody's living room uh, where uh, they were using that house for another location <laughs> as a house, but uh, we used the living room there. And that's that's where my cameo was shot. At the time I was doing specialized publicity for genre films for avco embassy and joe and i were friendly and uh, and he asked me if i wanted to do it and uh, now i'm in a classic yeah you are yeah a classic that just turned 40 years old isn't that amazing unbelievable i i can't believe it uh lucian wants to know which scene of yours was the most technically difficult to light can you can you think of one to light I mean, they're all a challenge. Maybe just shooting the courtroom in the judge. Because mm. <clears throat> I had seen beautifully lit courtroom movies and the like, and we had a beautiful set, but it was so big that you couldn't really light it artistically. And what I wanted was, you know, those green hooded desk lamps on all of the desks and, oh, and yeah. pools of light and dark and you know, just shafts through windows and stuff, but we couldn't get it because of the size of the set. And, you know, you want to be able to fine tune it. And it was too big a set to fine tune and just the circumstances under which it was made. So that's a mini series nobody's seen. And I'm talking about a scene that nobody's seen or a group of scenes, but that was really complicated. Um, you know, shooting outside something like the, the outdoor scenes in Las Vegas in the stand, those are easy because the light is all there and all right. you do is abet it a little bit. Um, and it's really fun to take all of that neon and, and put it to, to work for you. But, um, you know, lighting is, is something that if you have a great director of photography and a great gaffer, 
um, they're going to help you make magic wherever you are, as long as you understand how to communicate what the scene is all about. And as long as you're patient, because lighting takes oh. time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's for sure. And we go back to being level-headed again, patience yes. being a virtue, because yes. no matter how pissed off you get, if you rush it, you're just going to screw up your scene. Yeah. And, and then, and then your, your DP and the camera team and the grips and the electrics all get frustrated because mm -hmm. they're not doing their best work and slows everything down. And yeah, best, best to let them paint, paint the best picture they can, you yeah. know, that's, that's the best uh, advice I can give. And, and being practical about it too, where, you know, maybe you've got to cut a couple of shots, uh, maybe, you know, this is taking a little bit too long and you have to, at one point, say this is good enough yep yep i i've been there before <laughs> uh as i'm sure you have to yeah. uh once or twice yeah david asks if you and joe weren't already successful filmmakers uh would you still make movies as a creative outlet slash hobby now i'm not sure you know after uh, having done it for several decades um, I certainly love doing it and I would hate to stop doing it for any reason, but um, I love writing as well. And, you know, I'm in my 60s now and, and uh, you know, would I still want to do fan movies and the like where nobody gets paid and, and it's all your friends doing favors and things like that? Having been a professional filmmaker for so many years, um, that is such a privilege and it's such an amazing experience to work with the best people in the business in every department that if i weren't able to do it on that level i don't know that i would want to and that's just being quite candid yeah yeah no i i think i think once you've had the you know the been able to make movies at the level that you you've been able to make movies and and you know even even at the level that i've been able to make them uh it's such a privilege and it's so wonderful that once you taste that i guess forbidden fruit it would be hard to, to do it any yeah other way. i mean i've worked i've worked with uh people who've won oscars and been nominated for oscars and and just people of, of, of such a high level of talent. And, and it's been such an opportunity for me to learn from them and the like that having done it since, you know, I was in my early thirties, um, it would be hard to go back to uh, come on, everybody let's put on a show. Yeah, no, no, I, I, th I agree. I, I guess maybe I wonder flipping the question around just a little bit. If, Steven Spielberg hadn't called in the mid eighties for amazing stories and, and the career didn't, the doors didn't open. Would you have still kept pushing to try to make it happen or? Do you oh, sure. That? Sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, I had been doing it for years before that opportunity did happen. Mm -hmm. I'd been seriously, yeah. I started writing short stories seriously when I was 12 years old and was writing screenplays all through my twenties. And, it was just that opportunity Stephen gave me. But at a certain point, if I weren't able to do it for a living, if I'd been trying for decades and not able to, I don't know. I would still write, yeah. but I don't know that I would still keep trying to, to make movies in my 40s or 50s if I hadn't gotten the opportunity to do it for real. 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting hypothetical because you got to where you got, and I'm where I'm at because we had a specific drive that drove us to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, would, would that drive have, you know, I, I think if you have that drive and you have that passion, you're going to keep going until that opportunity hits. Right. Uh, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's just what it is. So I yeah. feel like even if it hadn't been Spielberg calling, it might've been someone else calling six months, a year later, you know, you um, would like to think so, but yeah, who knows? No, I, well, I, you know, I, it's I, such a cross section of, of the ability to deliver what people want and the luck of the draw, getting that call, having people in Spielberg's production office reading something that I wrote and saying, hire this guy for amazing stories. You know, that is 90% luck. And, yeah. and well, it's well, a com- also, combination you, with timing and, and ability to deliver. But you, but you had the passion to write that thing in the first place. And had you not written that thing, that intersection with which we can call luck would never have happened. So, yeah. you know, and I still write a lot of stuff on spec now. Yeah. And, you, gotta, and, you, gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta put in the work, you put in the yeah. work and then those opportunities will eventually materialize. So Hopefully. yeah, it is, it, it, I thought it was a really interesting question. I hadn't, you know, it uh, is, it is. Um, so th- thank you for that, uh, David. Um, Carlos writes, this one's for me, Mick. Carlos writes, Joe, can you please talk about your experience writing and directing your cool short peeping Tom? Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I made peeping Tom in 2010 while I was interning at a production company that I ended up, uh, becoming an executive assistant at. And, um, basically I got a thousand dollars from a friend and he said, go make something. And we knew we had to make it in one day because that was all we could afford and uh, pulled all the favors, like you said, getting the band together to put on a show. Uh, <laughs> and um, we shot it at my parents' house because it was free. And, <laughs> uh, you know, much, much to their chagrin. And yeah, I mean, it was just kind of one of those things where it was, we have a thousand dollars, we have a day to make something. What's a story that we could tell knowing that we had to shoot at my parents' house and the types of actors we had access to. And, um, and, and that was, that was kind of the Genesis for it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was really funky was we shot it in Arizona and it never rains in Arizona. And the day we shot it, it rained, uh, (laughs) (laughs) the one day of shooting, the the one day, the one day. So we had to work around that, but we did. And, uh, ultimately that was the short that got me my job in Los Angeles. Uh, it turned out well, and the producer of the production company I was interning at watched the short. And, uh, he said, you've got the talent, you've got the entrepreneurial spirit. You don't know anyone. You don't know how the industry works. Come work for me. And that's how I got my start in LA was, was making that short. So there you go. So there's a story with a happy ending and beginning. Absolutely. So, all right. Uh, now one for you. Uh, Eric wants to know, as someone who has adapted the works of Stephen King and Clive Barker, how is it adapting your own work with chocolate? Well, in some ways, in fact, in most ways, it's a lot easier. But in the case of chocolate, the short story ends at the middle of where the movie continues. Um, it's very freeing because I can take liberties any way that I want to, and nobody's going to give a shit. 
you know. Um, but having written that short story, I think I'd written it 20 years before we made the Masters of Horror film, and it had gone through many versions. Originally, I was going to do it as a feature film called Double Vision, and uh, the short story was called Chocolate, and then with the uh, uh, thought of doing it uh, in another couple of places, uh, we almost sold it as a feature for years and oh, wow. it never happened. So that when Masters of Horror came around, uh, I had the feature script and I updated it and scrunched it down to the hour long format. But it was really easy because I wasn't worrying about pissing off any fans. <laughs> I'm not a best selling author. So there were people, it had been anthologized in several books, including one of my own a, a book of short stories. But um, it was quite freeing because I could make it better. I could see, wow, I wish I'd done this 20 years ago. Well, hell, I can now. So it was very freeing and enjoyable and a total pleasure to do. But I, I really love the writing process anyway, whether I'm adapting someone, writing an original or adapting myself. It's a process that I find enjoyable and fun and relaxing. And I'm usually smiling when I'm writing even the darkest of scenes. So rather than, than cursing the, uh, the author, you saw it as an opportunity <laughs> to improve, improve on it. Uh, uh, there's no author that I've worked with that I've ever cursed. <laughs> including, including yourself. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's going to wrap it up for this week, Mick. Um, thank you again for answering all of these wonderful questions from our fans. Thanks to the fans for all the uh, wonderful questions. And you can ask them, Joe. You can send your questions to Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or to me at Joe Russo Tweets or Joe Russo Graham. All right, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.